Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. A gunman kills 14 students and one teacher at an elementary school in Texas. Authorities identify the suspect as an 18-year-old male who is believed to have been killed by responders. An Iraqi man has been holding a grudge since 2003 and he was preparing to do something about it with a plot to kill the 43rd president. GOP Senate candidate David McCormick is slightly behind in a tight Pennsylvania primary race. Now he's filed a lawsuit to get undated ballots counted. Key primary elections are happening in Georgia, Texas and Alabama tonight. And with Democrats holding a very slim majority in Congress, every vote counts. This year's midterms could flip the balance of power in the nation's capital. We'll take a look at how these races are unfolding. Insurance giant State Farm has abandoned its program of promoting transgenderism to children. This after consumer outcry over its effort to donate LGBTQ-themed books to schools and libraries. Fifteen people, including 14 children, were killed in a shooting at a Texas elementary school this afternoon. CBS Austin attended Governor Greg Abbott's press conference where he gave the update. Here's a clip. Uh, the shooter was uh, Salvador Romas, uh, an 18-year-old male who resided in Uvalde. Uh, it's believed that he abandoned his vehicle and entered into uh, the Robb Elementary School in Uvalde with, with a handgun, and he may have also had a rifle, but that is not yet confirmed according to my most recent report. The governor says that the suspected shooter killed 14 students and one teacher and that responding officers are believed to have killed the suspect. Abbott cited reports that the suspect was a student at Uvalde High School and that he had shot his grandmother right before going into the elementary school. The governor did not provide word on her condition. Robb Elementary School is in Uvalde, about 85 miles west of San Antonio and 75 miles from the southern border. The school is in a residential area and has just under 600 students. All schools in the district went into lockdown because of the shooting. The governor said in a statement, Texans across the state are grieving for the victims of this senseless crime and for the community of Uvalde. The White House press secretary wrote on Twitter that President Biden has been briefed on the Uvalde school shooting. Biden is also scheduled to make remarks on the shooting later this evening at 8.15 p.m. Eastern Time. An Iraqi man traveled to Dallas last November, allegedly in a plot to kill former President George W. Bush. He took video of the former president's home and planned to smuggle some recruited allies over the Mexican border. The assassination plot was reported by Forbes, which obtained an FBI search warrant application filed March 23rd. It was unsealed this week in the Southern District of Ohio. According to the Department of Justice, the man has been charged with aiding and abetting a plot to murder former President George W. Bush. The man, who is linked to ISIS operatives, came under FBI surveillance with the help of two confidential informants. As Forbes reported, the alleged plotter believes Bush was instrumental in killing many Iraqis and breaking apart the country after the 2003 U.S. military invasion. FBI officials had been monitoring the suspect's account on the Meta-owned WhatsApp messaging platform. 
The Republican National Committee has intervened against the David McCormick campaign's lawsuit to have undated mail-in ballots counted in the Pennsylvania Senate primary. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. The mail-in ballots are supposed to have a signature and a date on the envelopes that they're submitted. And the date not being on the envelope is what Pennsylvania's GOP Senate candidate David McCormick is challenging in a lawsuit filed late Monday. The campaign's attorney, Charles Cooper, said in an email, because all ballots are time-stamped by the county boards of elections on receipt, a voter's handwritten date is meaningless. All timely ballots of qualified Republican voters should be counted. A federal appeals court said the date did matter in a ruling last week on a different election case. Zach Smith, a legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation, said the Republican National Committee has a different understanding. The RNC disagrees with that, uh, saying that you know the law on the book should be followed, and more importantly, that the rules of the road, uh, the election laws that govern an election, should not change after votes are already being counted. The question is, should the rules be changed after the counting process has already started? Smith says courts usually don't change election rules after the race has started, but that remains to be seen. And there could be other problems. Well, it certainly creates a lot of uncertainty. This is a very close race for the Republic, in the Republican primary there in Pennsylvania. Obviously, as it works its way through the court system, uh, it will take time. There will be a delay in the resolution of knowing who won the Republican primary. McCormick and Dr. Mehmet Oz are in a tight race with Oz slightly ahead. Oz's campaign said in a statement that it will oppose McCormick's lawsuit. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. Tonight, voters in Georgia, Texas, Alabama, and a few other states have to decide which candidates will be on the ballot in November. For Democrat voters, the question is largely on whether they prefer moderate Democratic candidates or candidates pushing for a more progressive agenda. For Republicans, everyone is watching the support Trump-endorsed candidates receive compared to others. NTD's Melina Wisecup has a roundup of the top races to watch. Georgia voters headed to the polls today had decisions to make at all levels of government. The swing state could determine the fate of the U.S. Senate. Current Democrat Senator Raphael Warnock is up for re-election this November. Republican candidate Herschel Walker is leading in the polls and if he takes the primary as expected will face Warnock. This is one race that has the potential to flip the Senate's majority. And at the state level, Georgia's Governor Brian Kemp is facing Republican Trump-backed challenger, former Senator David Perdue. And Trump's influence on David Perdue and his election and his campaign has helped a great deal. But I'm re I will vote for Kemp. Former Senator Perdue was lagging behind Kemp in a previous Fox poll. But the result will show how much sway former President Trump has on voters in the purple state. The Republican victor will face Democrat Stacey Abrams in the final election. Our responsibility is to see the needs of every Georgian. The state also has tough choices for the House. Redistricting has left two Democrat representatives competing for one seat. Representatives Carolyn Bordeaux and Lucy Macbeth have similar voting records, but Bordeaux has a closer relationship with the party's moderate group on the Hill. So far, there's been a record voter turnout for the state, despite Democrats' accusations that the new voting law would create voter suppression. 
As for Texas, Democrat Congressman Cuellar is facing a runoff against progressive Jessica Cisneros. Cuellar has been tough on the Biden administration to get the border crisis under control, and the Democrat is pro-life. This contrasts with Cisneros, who has been endorsed by Socialist Democrat Bernie Sanders and other progressives. Last time, we were almost three percentage points away from defeating him, so we came back to finish the job. And in Alabama, there's a race for a Senate seat. Congressman Mo Brooks, who recently lost Trump's endorsement, is challenged by Katie Britt, whom Trump has spoken positively of. Democrats right now hold a very narrow majority in Congress. If just one seat is flipped in the Senate, Republicans could take control of the chamber. And over on the House side, there's a very slim margin between the two parties. So this November, we should be watching battleground states like Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Georgia, and Arizona. The outcome of these elections are crucial because they will determine if Democrats can continue to push President Biden's agenda through Congress or if Republicans will have the ability to put a Check on the president. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. U.S. Representative Madison Cawthorn is being investigated by the House Ethics Committee. Allegations have surfaced saying he was involved with insider dealing in cryptocurrency and an improper relationship with one of his staff members. The 10-member panel of the House Ethics Committee unanimously voted earlier this month to establish a subcommittee to investigate the allegations against Cawthorn. In a Monday press release, the committee noted that establishing an investigative subcommittee does not itself indicate that any violation has occurred. State Farm, the largest home insurance company in the U.S., says it no longer supports a program that promotes transgenderism to children. This comes after a media expose based on a whistleblower email. The program sought to donate LGBTQ-themed books to local schools and libraries. Here are the details. It was revealed Monday that insurance giant State Farm was encouraging its agents to donate children's books promoting transgenderism to their local schools or public libraries. A company whistleblower shared an internal email with nonprofit organization Consumers Research discussing the campaign. In the email, State Farm said it partnered with transgender youth advocacy group The Gender Cool Project in a campaign to donate sets of LGBTQ-themed kids' books. According to State Farm, this was to support having conversations on transgenderism with children age 5 plus. The books A Kid's Book About Being Transgender, A Kid's Book About Being Non-Binary, and A Kid's Book About Being Inclusive suggest that one's gender is changeable and that gender identities should be validated rather than challenged. State Farm initially defended the program, telling the Washington Examiner that it embraces diversity and inclusion because it's the right thing to do. However, following media scrutiny and customer outcry, the company announced that it no longer supports the book program. In an email to employees, State Farm wrote, Conversations about gender and identity should happen at home with parents. The company went on to say it will continue to support organizations that align with its commitment to diversity and inclusion. But Will Hill, the executive director for Consumers Research, said one internal email is not enough. In a tweet, he called on the company to take immediate action to reverse the indoctrination campaign they pushed on American children. With all eyes on China, the four leaders of the Quad Group, that's the U.S., Japan, Australia and India, vowed today to stand together for a free and open Indo-Pacific region. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. President Biden and his counterparts from Australia, India and Japan met Tuesday in Tokyo to discuss strengthening ties in the Indo-Pacific region to uphold democracy. Because that's what this is about, democracies versus autocracies, and we have to make sure we deliver. 
Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida linked Russia's invasion of Ukraine to China's increasing aggression towards Taiwan. Beijing considers democratic Taiwan as part of its territory, and it's recently sent record numbers of warplanes near the island. Although Japan's leader didn't call out China by name, he said the Quad can't let an invasion happen in the Indo-Pacific. It is crucial that we gather together for the four countries to align and show the international community that we are strongly committed for our common vision of a free and open Indo-Pacific. The White House says the Quad will focus on six main areas of cooperation. They include COVID-19 response and global health security, climate, critical and emerging technologies, cyber, space and infrastructure. Quad leaders also announced a Quad fellowship program and opened applications. The program will sponsor 100 students from Quad countries to study in the United States each year for graduate degrees in STEM fields, science, technology, engineering and mathematics. In addition to the summit with all four countries, Biden also met one-on-one -on -one with Australia's new Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. He was just sworn in Monday. My government is committed to working with your countries and we are committed to the Quad. Biden also met one-on-one -on -one with Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. They agreed to strengthen ties for trade, technology and defence. Although India has developed close ties with the US in recent years, it also has a long-standing relationship with Russia. Despite that, India and Washington have shared views on China, which the Quad views as a bigger long-term challenge than Russia. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. Also at the Quad Fellowship, President Biden reaffirmed that the U.S. policy of strategic ambiguity on Taiwan has not changed. This just one day after he suggested that the end of that position, saying he was willing to use force to defend Taiwan. Here's more. Following a Monday speech about U.S. military support for Taiwan, President Joe Biden was asked if U.S. strategic ambiguity on Taiwan is dead. The president said no. Our policy has not changed at all. I stated that when I made my statement yesterday. He also did not answer a question about whether he would put troops on the ground to defend Taiwan. Biden's two comments appear to contradict each other. Some critics have even said he misspoke on the issue or simply made a gaffe. But one expert argued it wasn't a slip of the tongue. President Biden, when he was a senator, voted for the Taiwan Relations Act. He's visited Taiwan before. He's not new to foreign policy. So in my view, given where it was said in Japan, next to the Japanese prime minister, the context coming after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, I believe that this was not a gaffe. Under the Taiwan Relations Act, Washington is required to provide self-ruled Taiwan with the means to defend itself, but it has long followed the policy of strategic ambiguity toward the island. That is, leaving China to guess exactly what the United States would do if the Communist Party chose to invade. So I think President Biden's statement was not intended to signal a shift in U.S. policy. It was intended to clarify uh, how committed or how much support the United States uh, attaches to the Indo-Pacific region, as well as uh, U.S. attention on what's happening in terms of cross-strait dynamics. Tensions in the Taiwan Strait have gained renewed attention in light of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. According to Yin Sun from the D.C.-based Stimson Center, what Biden meant by military support can be interpreted in a number of ways. 
well, of course, people would say that, oh, most directly, military intervene means American boots on the ground. Well, not necessarily. What we have done in Ukraine, that is intervention, but it does not involve direct troop deployment from the United States. That intervention could come in the form of training for Taiwan's military or additional weapons sales to the island. Yesterday, President Biden launched a new Indo-Pacific economic framework for prosperity. Observers call it an American attempt to counter China's influence in Asia. But Taiwan isn't part of the framework. Paul Graney, host of NTD Business, asked an international economics expert why. The group will focus on four main economic pillars, connecting economies, including digitally, supply chain resilience, renewable energy, as well as tax and anti-corruption. The framework has 13 members, including the United States. Together, they represent 40 percent of global gross domestic product. The new group does not include China or Taiwan. Paul Graney, host of NTD Business, asked the deputy director of the Hudson Institute Japan chair why Taiwan isn't part of the new framework. Other countries who officially don't recognize Taiwan as its own separate uh, governing body may be offended and not join this new framework. Absolutely. I think the leading indicator for the White House of the success of this framework is the number of countries that they could get to sign up to it initially, which right now is 12. Uh, and so to have included Taiwan and lost several of those members, they wouldn't have gotten 12. Right now, the Chinese Communist Party is giving out cheap loans to countries in the Indo-Pacific in order to strengthen its own foothold in the region. What can the U.S. offer these countries? A lot of these countries do want more trade with the United States. They want to be able to export to the world's largest consumer. But again, we're not offering that as a part of this framework. Why? Political reasons, honestly. You know, uh, the Biden administration and his uh, trade representative, their number one priority is American workers. Uh, you know, it's putting American workers first above all other things. And for them, that doesn't mean increasing imports. That means increasing exports. It's much like the previous Trump administration's priorities. He added that Washington should change strategy if we want to compete with China over the next decade or more. Coming up, a man is now in custody after allegedly shooting and killing a Goldman Sachs banker in New York City's subway. The victim reportedly was on his way to brunch and didn't interact with the suspect prior to the shooting. The Massachusetts subway system has been having problem after problem since partnering with a Chinese state-owned train manufacturer. Just how dangerous could that be? That and more here on NTD News. every country communism gains power, authoritarianism and death followed in its wake. Communism promises a world without suffering, and yet, in its execution, does the exact opposite. Following Lenin's death, Stalin's 29-year reign killed an estimated 60 to 66 million people. More famines and purges would occur. The very peasants that communism was supposed to benefit instead starved to death under its rule. The party dictates what is right and wrong. Mao ended up killing between 50 million and 70 million people.
As an investigative journalist, I want to understand why. New York City police have arrested a murder suspect and alleged gang member. He's suspected of shooting a banker for Goldman Sachs who was taking the subway to Sunday brunch. NTD's Arian Pazdar has the details. According to witnesses, the suspect paced back and forth in a subway car on Sunday. All of a sudden, he pulled a gun out and shot and killed a 48-year-old man. According to reports, the two didn't talk or had any other contact. NYPD confirmed that the suspect is now in custody. That's after an afternoon full of conflicting reports. Police sources reportedly told media that the man was in custody after a clergyman arranged his surrender. Later, it was reported the suspect didn't actually surrender and the clergyman showed up to the precinct alone. In the end, the suspect was arrested elsewhere and taken to the surrender location. His arrival was filmed by News 4. According to the police commissioner, the suspect's criminal history stretches back to 2016. It includes charges of felony assault, robbery, attempted murder, and a still open gun charge from two years ago. The most basic purpose of the criminal justice system is to keep people safe. And in the only state in our nation where a judge is not allowed to consider dangerousness when setting bail, this was another, a yet another failure of that system. It is not clear yet what the suspect is being charged with, but for now, he is in custody at a precinct here in New York. Arian Pastar, NTD News, New York. And the Boston Transit System is having troubles of its own. New Orange Line cars made by a Chinese state-owned train maker have again been removed from service, this time because of a brake issue. The incident follows a series of other problems and accidents that have taken place in the past three years. NTD's Chen Wu tells us more. Last Thursday, the Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority, or MBTA, suspended all Orange Line and Red Line trains after one of the vehicles experienced a problem. The investigation revealed that a bolt in the train's braking system had not been properly installed at the manufacturing plant. The MBTA's new fleet of red and orange line cars were made by a Chinese state-owned company, CRRC. The train cars are assembled at the company's factory in Springfield. The Chinese company is under a nearly billion-dollar contract to deliver over 400 cars to replace the old fleet over the next few years. But since their debut in 2019, these new trains have failed at least five times. Last year, Orange Line trains were put out of service for five months after a train with about 100 passengers derailed. And just last month, a Red Line passenger was dragged to his death after his arm got caught in a closing car door. Authorities say the incident may have been the result of a defective door control system. The Boston Globe reported that MBTA officials were frustrated by the numerous technical issues and that their confidence in CRRC has been reduced due to past failures. The Orange Line trains returned to passenger service on Monday. Chenny Wu, NTD News. Almost a dozen groundbreaking new films are playing in New York City this week, welcoming back a beloved film festival for the first time since the pandemic. NTD's Tiffany Meyer was on the scene last night at the movie premiere of a stunning new animation film. The Human Rights Watch Film Festival is returning to New York after a two-year break. 
We're here at Lincoln Center at the Human Rights Watch Film Festival where we're about to watch Eternal Spring. Let's see who we can grab before that. Eternal Spring is a stunning new animation film which tells the story of brave members of Falun Gong or Falun Dafa, a spiritual practice with 100 million practitioners around the world. The massive group was tortured in China. Many were even killed by the Chinese Communist Party for simply believing in their faith. I met up with director and producer Jason Loftus right before the movie's U.S. premiere. We talked about what inspired him to make this movie, which took nearly six years to bring to fruition. I took my lead really from the people that I was seeing come out of China. And what I witnessed was people who were willing to sacrifice a lot more than I was facing in order to be able to speak the truth in the face of injustice. And I just figured if we don't do the same with the freedom um, that we have here, then, you know, we may regret that in the long run. So I think it's important that we use the freedom we have to speak up. And fortunately, I think there's a lot of people who agree with that. Loftus is also the CEO of his own gaming studio, producing video games that have grown in popularity worldwide, including China. But while producing the Eternal Spring movie, the Chinese government put immense pressure on his business, trying to stop him from releasing the film. So the video game I mentioned was being published by Tencent in China, which is a large media company. But in the midst of making these films, uh, the, the Chinese government contacted Tencent and forced them to cut ties with my company. But Loftus and his team persisted, releasing the film anyway. Sold out tonight at the Lincoln Center, which is really exciting. I'm looking forward to it. I also spoke to the comic book artist behind the movie, as well as one of the main characters, Da Xiong. He's worked on big comic book projects, including Star Wars and the Justice League. There are always people in this world who need to stand up and do the right thing, just like the sacrifices by the group of heroes depicted in this movie. The movie has already won many awards after premiering in Canada and Europe, on its way to becoming a global success even without the Chinese market. We just watched Eternal Spring. It was truly beautiful and touching. If you get the chance, come check it out. This was just the first stop on their U.S. tour, so there's lots still coming. Tiffany Meyer, NTD News, New York. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has made Time Magazine's list of the 100 most influential people of 2022. He was chosen for his decision to keep Florida open during the pandemic, despite, quote, relentless criticism. Time magazine wrote his approach works, saying it's one that has allowed Florida to emerge from the pandemic as a national model of personal freedom, economic growth, environmental protection and education excellence. Time went on to applaud Florida's record population growth, low unemployment rate, booming private sector and education quality, calling the Sunshine State a national leader in school choice. The magazine also commended DeSantis's environmental and wildlife conservation efforts and said while the Beltway crowd may not like his style, it's his record that will become his legacy. Diesel prices are the highest they've ever been in the history of America by far. The current $5.57 is 80 cents higher than the second highest price, which happened during the 2008 financial crisis. Biden might release diesel fuel reserves to help. NTD's Chenny Wu has more. The Biden administration may release diesel fuel reserves to curb prices. Diesel prices are at $5.57, close to an all-time high in the entire history of U.S. diesel usage. The release would come from the Northeastern Home Heating Oil Reserve, 
which has terminals in Perth Amboy, New Jersey, and Groton and New Haven, Connecticut. The reserve is very small. You're talking about one million barrels. It's tiny. Antoine Half is the co-founder of climate data firm Kairos, as well as a former chief analyst at the International Energy Agency. Half says this wouldn't do much long term. It could have an impact in, in the market that's most affected by the uh, tightness in, in diesel supply today. Uh, but it would have a fairly, it would be a fairly localized impact and a fairly short-term impact. The East Coast, in particular, is suffering a lot as diesel supply has dived to its lowest level since 1990. People are even stealing diesel. A thousand gallons were stolen from a family gas station in Houston two weeks ago. The administration keeps returning to a plan that hasn't proven any success. Daniel Turner is the founder of Power the Future, which provides information on energy. Turner says, Biden has tapped into the Strategic Petroleum Reserves, uh, and prices have done nothing but go up since then. And America isn't experiencing the worst. The whole world is seeing high diesel prices. Sweden is seeing average prices of $8.95 per gallon. Monaco, the second smallest country in the world, a little over $9. And Hong Kong, $10. Chenny Wu, NTD News. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, the Speaker of the House responded to an archbishop banning her from communion in her home district. The ban comes after she openly supported abortion. We'll hear what she said. And a bipartisan bill is making its way through California's legislature. The bill targets social media companies for writing algorithms that can get children addicted to their product. Parents will be able to sue the companies as a result. We'll look at how much money they can claim after the break. Over to the West Coast, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi made her first comments on being banned from receiving communion in her home diocese on Friday. San Francisco's Archbishop said she is not permitted to receive Holy Communion due to her stance on abortion. NTD's Jason Blair brings us the story. The news of Nancy Pelosi being barred from receiving Holy Communion in San Francisco made headlines last week. The Speaker of the House, who has described herself as a devout Catholic, made her first public response to the ban on MSNBC's Morning Joe on Tuesday morning. She said she comes from a largely pro-life Catholic family. So I, I respect people's views about, uh, about that, but I don't respect us foisting it onto others now. Pelosi also said that this is more than just about abortion, saying these same people are against contraception, family planning, in vitro fertilization. It's a blanket thing, and they use abortion as the front man for it. Last week, Archbishop Salvatore Cordelione publicly announced in a letter that Pelosi is not allowed to receive Holy Communion in San Francisco unless she repudiates her abortion stance. Cordelione told EWTN that he started to become more concerned when Pelosi became aggressively outspoken in support of writing Roe v. Wade into federal law. Ever since then, I have made several attempts to, to speak with her, uh, and I've either been denied or have just received no response. The Archbishop has also been outspoken in the past against President Joe Biden receiving communion, also because of Biden's stance on abortion. 
Jason Blair, NTD News, San Francisco. Parents have become more involved in their children's education. Some are even running for school boards. One politician says it's because many parents feel that the people in charge aren't making decisions in their children's best interest. Here's NTD's Eileen Ang with more. Sean Steele, former chair of the California Republican Party, told California insider CMAC Korami parents used to never participate in school board meetings. But they do now because they question more, especially during the pandemic lockdown. Why isn't the, aren't the schools opening and why are they requiring these particular texts? And the parents were doing something for two years. They were watching online the Zoom what the parent, what the children were being taught and they couldn't believe their eyes. They heard rumors, now they see it in real time. And they saw that, that the instruction was inferior, not good as a classroom, but they actually for the first time were active participants in seeing the curriculum of their kids. One example is the successful San Francisco school board recall, which Steele called a launching pad for parents getting involved. During the pandemic, the board didn't prioritize students' return to in-person instruction. Parents held many protests and rallies, eventually recalling three board members in February. Parents have also called to make masks optional in school and protested against critical race theory and gender inclusion instruction in the curriculum. And they're basically saying the parents are not really relevant. We're going to teach these children to like gay and trans people. We're going to tell them about the bodily functions of third graders. We're going to teach them to be inclusive. We're going to teach them to be open-minded and not to listen to their parents. They're doing this because they can. The schools have been infiltrated deeply by people that aren't even very good teachers. Steele said many school board members act in the interest of the union because they negotiate with the union about their annual pay increases. It's really a war. It's really serious. Many school districts hate the people they are serving because they're there because some union pushed them into power or they felt that they had an entitlement. Not all school districts are bad. About 80% are bad. School boards advise, hire the superintendent, staff, and review teacher complaints and curriculum. They are elected every four years. There are 940 school districts in California. To watch the full program, find California Insider on YouTube or Epic TV on the Epic Times website. And a new social media bill is making its way through California's legislature. It would hold tech companies liable for their products. Lawmakers say it's to protect kids from the harms caused by social media addiction. Here's more from NTD's David Lamb. Social media helps people stay connected. On the other hand, it can also cause harm to people if it's obsessive. Now, recently, lawmakers in California came together to take a step in facing this issue affecting children. California could soon hold social media companies responsible for harming children who have become addicted to their apps. The bill targets addictive algorithms written into the apps rather than addictive content. Members, we have a youth mental health crisis on our hands. Instagram made findings, and I'm quoting their own findings. We make body image issues worse for one in three teen girls. 13% of teen girls say Instagram makes thoughts of suicide worse. Assembly Bill 2408, known as the Social Media Platform Duty to Children Act, will allow parents to sue social media platforms if their children become addicted to their apps. 
Parents could sue platforms like Instagram and TikTok for up to $25,000 per violation. Assembly members Republican Jordan Cunningham and Democrat Buffy Wicks introduced it in February. And many of these kids believe they can't live with social media companies and they can't live without it. And we have to do everything we can as parents. That is what we are. We are parents. Our number one job as lawmakers is to keep our community safe. The bill defines addiction as kids under 18 who are both harmed physically, mentally, emotionally, developmentally, or materially, and who want to stop or reduce time spent on social media. But they can't because they are preoccupied or obsessed with it. You know, everyone is welcome to innovate. They need to innovate with responsibility. They need to innovate with products and services that are not designed to harm our kids. Cunningham said the bill does not regulate content, but rather features that programmers put into the new products. These features include programming designed to hook kids on the app. And 6% of American teen users trace the desire to kill themselves to Instagram. 6%! This addiction is fueled by algorithms that run in the background of the apps that they use. He said other companies are liable for the safety of their products, such as producing stuffed toy animals or bicycle helmets. We haven't done that for social media yet, for two reasons I can think of. One, is it's relatively new. Second, is that we didn't know what they were doing on the back end to design these algorithms to hook our kids on their product. And we didn't know the harm that was coming from that. But it's real and it's significant. Several business groups, such as TechNet, a bipartisan network of tech CEOs, said if the bill passes, social media companies and online web services would have no choice but to cease operations for kids under 18 and would implement stringent age verification in order to ensure that adolescents did not use their sites. If the bill becomes law, it would take effect on January 1st next year. Companies that remove features deemed addictive to children by April 1st or conduct regular audits on these features would not be responsible for damages. The potential impacts of social media, particularly on young people, particularly on young women and girls, are profound. And that's what we're hearing from medical experts. On Monday, May 23rd, the bill passed on the assembly floor in a 51-0 vote. 27 votes were not received. The bill is on the way through the legislature, where it could undergo weeks of hearings and negotiations. David Lamb, Entity News, California. Coming up, experts say the lockdowns in China are impacting the U.S. economy. American companies and consumers are feeling the effects. And files leaked from a Chinese police database in Xinjiang detail abuse of detained Uyghurs as the UN Human Rights Chief arrives in the region. That and more after this short break. Navigating a world of economic madness, you need to have the right guide. What do today's decisions mean for your tomorrow? We ask why, what's the alternative? Uncover the deeper reasons and the hidden influences and highlight the real opportunities for profit. At Entity Business, we connect the dots for you. Good evening.
Officials in Shanghai say they'll soon begin to ease restrictions that shut down factories. That's after weeks of lockdowns in China. Experts say the stagnation there is impacting the U.S. economy and American companies blame the shutdowns for losses. What does this mean for consumers? Weeks of lockdowns in China have left their mark and American consumers are also feeling the impact. It is going to be a painful time on prices from goods that come into America from China. And that's a lot of goods. Economic data for April shows China's industrial output, what factories produced, fell by 2.9% compared to last April. Last month, the world's largest container port in Shanghai was running at about half of its capacity. Companies can't find truck drivers to move cargo, choking off supply chains and increasing costs for companies. Experts say that's leaving American consumers waiting longer to get their goods and paying more for them. The orders will take a lot longer. If you thought it was bad in 2021, it's going to get worse in 2022. American companies like Apple, Amazon, Starbucks, Coca-Cola and General Electric are getting hit hard by China's lockdowns. Apple says it could lose up to $8 billion in sales in part by the lockdown. And recently, two of the world's biggest automakers, Volkswagen and Toyota, suspended production for weeks. And Tesla sold about 1,500 cars in mainland China in April, made it its Shanghai plant, a decline from March when it sold 65,000. Business needs predictability. Is it going to be six months, nine months? We don't even know when Shanghai is going to stop the lockdown. Meanwhile, U.S. hospitals are facing a shortage of contrast dye used in some X-ray, MRI and CT scans because the Chinese factory that produces it was shut down for weeks. British lawmakers today condemned the Chinese Communist Party's human rights violations as leaked police files reveal details of abuses that minorities face in Xinjiang. The release of the files include thousands of photographs of detainees and a shoot-to-kill policy for those trying to escape. It comes as the United Nations Commissioner for Human Rights arrived in China. NTD's Jane Wuerl brings us more on this. As the UN's human rights chief, Michelle Bachelet, arrived in China, files allegedly leaked from a Chinese police database reveal further disturbing violations against Uyghurs held in internment camps in Xinjiang. Details of the files were published by the BBC and include thousands of images of detainees and protocols for guarding the camps, including a shoot-to-kill policy for those trying to escape, as well as speeches by senior officials showing their demands to treat Uyghurs like dangerous criminals. In response, Foreign Secretary Liz Truss said in a statement that the UK is committed to holding China to account. Earlier, MP Nisrat Ghani raised the issue in Parliament. The reason why this evidence was on the BBC this morning, because it coincides with a UN visit, the visit of Ms Bachelet, who is the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights. It's a rare visit, but unfortunately, the Chinese Communist Party have said that because of COVID, it's a closed-loop visit. It's in a bubble. So they will absolutely control who she sees and who she meets. Another example of the UN being bullied by the CCP. Does the minister share my concerns that this UN visit and any report produced will deny the absolute truth what's happening against the Uyghur people, which is the genocide at the hands of the CCP? While ministers say they haven't called the treatment of Uyghurs a genocide because of that policy, MPs passed a motion last April declaring that the Chinese regime is committing a genocide against Uyghur Muslims and other minorities in Xinjiang. Has committed genocide. 
The independent UK-based Uyghur tribunal ruled last December that China has committed genocide against the Uyghurs. It also found the Chinese regime guilty of crimes against humanity, including torture, sexual violence and forced sterilisation. There are calls from MPs for the government to do more, including issuing more sanctions on Chinese officials and to reduce the UK's dependency on the Chinese economy. As for Bachelet's visit, Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary, said that she's following it closely and that if full access isn't granted, it would only serve to highlight China's attempt to hide the truth of its actions in Xinjiang. Jane Wirral, NTD News, London. Three months have passed since Russia began its invasion of Ukraine. At the critical moment of the second phase of the war, fighting in eastern Ukraine is raging as Russia launches an all-out offensive. Moscow claims it's deliberately slowing its offensive to allow civilians to be evacuated. NTD's Trevor Piper has more. Russian forces were launching an all-out assault to encircle Ukrainian troops in twin cities straddling a river in eastern Ukraine on Tuesday a battle which could determine the success or failure of Moscow's main campaign in the east. Severodonetsk and Lysychansk have become the pivotal battlefield, with Russian forces advancing from three directions to encircle them. The enemy exerts an intense fire along the entire line of confrontation and in the depths of the defense of our troops in the Donetsk, Slobozhansk and the South Bucha operational areas. The greatest hostilities are noted in the Donetsk operational area. Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu told defense ministers of the Collective Security Treaty Organization that Russia was deliberately slowing its offensive in Ukraine to allow civilians to be evacuated. Ceasefires are being declared and a humanitarian corridor is created in order to get people out of settlements that are surrounded. Of course, this slows down the pace of the offensive, but this is done deliberately to avoid casualties among the civilian population. Three months have now passed since Russia began its invasion of Ukraine, and with no end in sight, those fighting continue to pay a high price. On Monday, a unit commander and a handful of fellow soldiers buried one of their comrades in a cemetery in Kharkiv. I think it's a big price to pay. People's lives are priceless, and it's not right for young men to die. Diplomacy must solve this. 32-year-old Alexander Martehoyan lost his life when Shell set fire to the house in which his unit was stationed on May 10th. It's very terrifying. It's terrifying. The way mothers are left without sons. Alexander leaves a daughter and a wife behind. I don't know how they will cope living with this. It's a big loss for the little child especially. It's unclear how many Ukrainians have died in combat as the nation doesn't release figures. But President Vladimir Zelensky said up to 100 soldiers may die every day in the east of the country now. Also in Kharkiv, the authorities were expected to reopen the underground metro, where thousands of civilians had sought shelter for months. The reopening is a symbol of Ukraine's biggest military success over the past few weeks, pushing Russian forces largely out of artillery range of Kharkiv, as they did from the capital, Kiev, in March. Trevor Piper, NTD News. A conservative British lawmaker said parents whose children identify as non-binary or trans should push back and tell them to be proud of who they are. As members of Parliament debated a public petition on making non-binary a legally recognized gender identity in the UK. NTD's Joy Duguid has more. 
Conservative MP Nick Fletcher said parents should push back if their children identified themselves as non-binary or trans, and the children would thank the parents for it in the long run. If your child comes home with these concerns, talk to them, but be strong. Do not ever give in to them or to peer pressure from other adults. Your child was born a boy or a girl. Be proud of who they are. Tell them to be proud of who they are. A petition which calls on the government to make non-binary a legally recognised gender identity in the UK attracted more than 140,000 signatures. Fletcher said he did accept that non-binary people do exist, but did not agree that legal recognition for them is needed. We are a tolerant nation and we accept you as you are. However, it does not follow that the law has to be changed to reflect the way certain individuals feel. The Don Valley MP questioned why, in certain areas of the country, more school children are saying they are non-binary or trans, where this came from and who put this idea into children's minds. He said society should protect children whilst they are children. I believe making non-binary a legal identity and an acceptance that this is an easy path to take will have hugely detrimental effects on many young people when I know as a certain fact that they are not old or mature enough to make that decision and understand the long-term and life-changing consequences. 23-year-old woman Kira Bell began to take puberty blockers when she was 16, but later came to regret the decision. In 2020, she brought the NHS's Gender Identity Development Service for Children to court. Initially, her case won a judgment that children under the age of 16, considering gender reassignment, were unlikely to be considered mature enough to give informed consent to be prescribed puberty blockers. However, the Court of Appeal overturned the judgment. Joy Dugid, NTD News. Coming up, a workshop in Venice takes the ancient art of weaving to a new level. Their products have reached celebrities in the White House, the Kremlin and Hollywood. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. A workshop in Venice is preserving the ancient art of weaving using wooden looms. The precious velvets they produce are coveted by the White House, the Kremlin, stars and popes alike. In a small workshop in Venice, seven artisans are crafting delicate velvet on weaving machines. They are the last guardians of this ancient art. Velvet weaving was one of the most important economic activities in Venice, and people came to Venice from all over the world to buy velvets. Their end product is shipped to the rich and powerful. The CEO of Bevilacqua Textiles says the tiger skin velvet in his possession was used to upholster chairs in singer Mariah Carey's mansion. This one of the Kremlin is one of the most recent. It was made about 10 years ago, for example. This other one was made for the White House during the presidency of Eisenhower. I remember that during the presidency of Giovanni Gronchi, something was made for the Curinal Palace in Rome. Then we were pontifical suppliers for many years, so the most important churches in the Vatican were furnished with our fabrics. Textiles in Venice were once as famous as its architecture and sculpture. From the 13th to the 18th century, the velvet produced was used to make the most luxurious clothes for European nobility. 
But due to rapid industrialization of the roughly 6,000 looms used by weavers in the 16th century, only 18 remain today. The company revived the old looms in 1875 and has been in business for six generations. One thing that sets us apart is that we are able to reproduce in a truly incredible way a two to three hundred year old fabric. After all, the looms we use are two to three hundred years old. Manual weaving requires a complex series of operations that add to production time. In some cases, an entire day is necessary to weave less than eight inches of fabric. Once, the fabric for a chair that was decorated for the Kremlin took a whole year to complete. The techniques are the same as in the past, so we can't even consider using something technological. And this is also perhaps the main feature of this work, the fact that we don't need to have something new, but it works perfectly as it used to. It is precisely the patience and skill behind each piece of fabric that makes them delicate and beautiful, which is why requests come from all over the world. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.